0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracetysd.com.
1: Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. You pray with me. Lord, I just um, thank you for this time this morning. Kind of just pray you soften our hearts, Lord. There's uh, there's parts of our hearts that are uh, so stubborn that we don't even know they're there, Lord. I just pray that you your word would just um, would just open our hearts to to hearing. Um, you this morning. God, I just thank you for this church. I just thank you. uh, And we just want to want to give our lives to you as as ministers of your word. Uh, Jesus name. Amen.
0: So uh, if you're new this morning, my name is Randall. I'm glad you're here. Uh, We're going to be digging into this book of Titus and I'm excited about that. Last week we went through Vision Sunday. We talked about Grace City. We've been here for a couple of years and just seeing how God continues to shape this church. So last week we talked about uh, this idea of membership. And so we're going to be starting membership uh, next month. We're looking forward to that. But uh, really we want to have a biblical basis of why. Why are we doing these things? Why are we coming together uh, talking about the church? And so we're starting this series, Crafted by God. Um, and we're looking at as Matt uh, just read the book of Titus. And in this book, uh, as we talk about the church, we're gonna be able to find really, in a lot of ways, a helpful blueprint for what it looks like to be a healthy, thriving church. And so um, that's commentator uh, Daniel Aiken on the book of Titus. Here's what he says. He says, this little book, Titus, is a blueprint for planting and building churches that will survive and thrive for the glory of God. Here's the thing. Grace City is not here for itself. We are here for the glory of God. And so as we go through studying this book, our goal as a young church is we wanna be a body of believers that dies to self, glorifies God at every area. And so for us also, my hope for you is that you are in a thriving, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We want you to, to grow and be discipled into more and more the image of Jesus. And so just to give you a little map of where we're going over the next seven weeks, we're gonna be studying this book of Titus, looking at God's design for the church and why we need God's church as we grow in Christ. So today, our text is Titus 1, 1 through 4, and the message is this, crafted by a common faith. Crafted by a common faith. Um, on August 28th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a powerful, groundbreaking speech entitled, I Have a Dream. And as he shared this vision, it was a beautiful vision of different races and backgrounds of people coming together, living life together as brothers and sisters in peace and love. And on May 2015, Nancy Hill, who's a professor at Harvard uh, School of Education, wrote an article about King's speech. And here's what it's entitled. Can we have Martin Luther King's dream without his faith? Here's what she says. Many people who have no belief in God at all are passionately committed to racial justice. So do we need Christianity today to realize Martin Luther King's dream? or is it just a matter of historical interest that he was so shaped by his Christian faith? She says, it's undeniable that the Reverend tied his own vision and purpose for fighting for equity and justice, not just for the poor and African-Americans, but for the oppressed throughout the world to his understanding of the true meaning of Christianity in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther King and True Christianity Charges us to embrace those who are different from us in ways that we are not inclined to do so under normal circumstances. Is there a worldview that offers a better foundation for this than the model of Jesus? Who helps us to helps us trust that we can embrace those who persecute us and through humility and love change the hearts of people? Perhaps, but I haven't seen it. Hill's argument is this that It's King's faith in Jesus that gave him the foundation for racial reconciliation. It was his belief in God's word that broke down walls. And so today we find in our text that God has given Christians a common faith that brings unprecedented unity in places where we are naturally divided. Look at verse four. Here's what Paul says, to Titus, my child in a common faith. Here's what's interesting about that. Paul is of Jewish descent. Titus is a Gentile, not of Jewish descent. And to give the history behind that, Jews had a special access to God that Gentiles did not. But here, Paul says something revolutionary. Here's what he says. Paul refers to Titus as his child. He says, your family. And what that means is that through their faith, through their common faith, Titus now has equal access to God. And it's this faith that Paul and Titus preached together in the city of Crete and a church was formed. You see that same message, that same common faith is what reaches forward to us today in 2018. It is God's word. It's his gospel preached. See, there are many things that currently divide us, whether it be race, age, gender, economic status. But in Jesus, God creates family, brothers and sisters out of natural enemies. See, the Bible tells us that all of us are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And that all, have inherent worth and value because of our creator. But it's in our common faith that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that John 1.12 says, we become children of God. You see, because at the end of verse four, it says this, uh, Paul says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. God, our father, God is a father who loves his children and it's only possible through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus saved us into a family. In his book, Love in Hard Places, Don Carson suggests that ideally the church isn't composed of natural friends, but rather natural enemies He says what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I want you to think for a minute about Jesus' disciples. If you were to take the different disciples that Jesus chose, they would have not have been natural friends. It is a miracle that they coexisted with one another. Yet, it is that group of men that God used to go out and preach the gospel and change the world. Natural enemies, bound together because of Jesus Christ. See, our common faith and allegiance, respective of our backgrounds, is built on the person and work of Jesus. See, he embodied our common faith. And through him, he establishes his church. Multi-ethnic, multi-generational, beautifully diverse church. And so what is the church? The word uh, that we translate for church is the Greek word ekklesia. And during that time, as it was used, it was a very common word. It just meant gathering or assembly. But ecclesia eventually took on a new terminology for Christ followers that continued to gather together regularly to worship Jesus. And so this very common word gathering ecclesia is what becomes the word that we use for church today. Author Paul Tripp defines the church this way. He says, the church is where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better and learn to love others as he designed. That's the church. And so what does our common faith look like? That's what we're gonna look at today in Titus one, one through four. And so just to give some background uh, of this book, at some point, Paul and Titus had preached together in Crete, people had been saved. And so Paul leaves Titus behind to appoint elders leaders in this new church plan. And now Paul writes to Titus to encourage him to continue in their common faith of the gospel. And he tells them that it must just permeate the church. People must know this common faith of the gospel and it must just cover every level of the church and what it is. And so in today's text, we find three distinctions of our common faith in Christ. And all three are God-centered. It's, just, it's all about God, right? And so sometimes we come to church, we think it's, by oh, my, my preference is about me. But what we find is that the church is God-centered. And what I mean by that is this, that it points to God as the hero. God's the hero. God's the one that does it. And so here's what that looks like. And so I'm gonna give you all three points up front. We're gonna break this down together and then we're gonna take some uh, takeaways away after we break this down. So the first um, of the three points is that God saves. God saves. The second point is that God secures. And the third one is that God shapes. God saves, God secures, God shapes. And so we're gonna break this down together and we're gonna look at it starting in verse one uh, where God saves. So, It starts with this in verse 1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So here's where it starts Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now here's what we need to know about Paul. He was first named Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church, he was an enemy of Christ. And he, was a po- uh, he, and he supported the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. So he was there watching on as Stephen was killed. And then what we find in Acts 9, uh, verses one through 19 is this, that God steps into Saul, who becomes Paul's life. He was traveling on the Damascus road with the intent to destroy God's church. And then Jesus appears and radically saves him. So if you were to ask Paul, Paul, how'd you get saved? He wouldn't have said, well, I just kind of stumbled into it. No, I, I didn't just find Jesus. No, what he would have said is, God found me. Jesus found me. He came into my life. He broke in in a time where I wasn't even expecting it. It was a radical transformation that happens in Paul's life. See, Paul, deep in his sin, going to go persecute the church is radically transformed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. See, here's how much Jesus loves his church. As Paul is on his way to go persecute the church, Jesus looks at Paul and says, Paul, why do you persecute me? That's how deeply tied Jesus is to his church. That's how deeply tied he is and loves us, is that he would say, Paul, as you're persecuting the church, you're actually persecuting me. See here, you may have not persecuted Christians like Paul, but we are in as deep need of a savior as Paul was. And God breaks through in different ways, in different stories, but he's the one that breaks through. See, Jesus defined his mission in Luke 5, 32, when he said this, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, if we were to look at our lives, we would say, we're not the people that we should be. We've sinned before a holy God yet it says that Jesus's mission was to come, to call us to himself, to repent, to say, God, I'm wrong, you're right. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, who passed away not too long ago, said this. He says, for a Christian to be a Christian, you must first be a sinner. Being a sinner is a prerequisite for being a church member. The Christian church is one of the few organizations in the world that requires a public acknowledgement of sin as a condition for membership. Here's the thing. Your pastor needs God. Apart from Jesus, I am a sinner. I have nothing apart from Jesus. He covers my sin. And so here's the thing. You say, well, okay, we acknowledge this, that we are sinners, but but what happens next? Paul says that his purpose in life, why God saved him, why God sent him on the path that he was on was for this, the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's elect. And so there's two parts to this. He says, the faith, like for you and me, how do we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not through working our way to God, but it is that God worked his way to us and that we place our faith, we trust him. We say, my only hope, my only shot, the only way that I could be saved before a holy God is if God saves me, if God saves me, if God does it. But the second part is this, he says, of God's elect. How do we work that? We say, okay, uh, what does that mean? that if you enter into the door and say Jesus I follow you that you turn around and you look back and he says I chose you you didn't cho- choose me that God did this miraculous thing in your life and he broke through in a, in a miraculous way and he saves you what does that mean I think Daniel Akin says it well here in his commentary on Titus. He says, Paul sees no dichotomy, no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of man. Salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign uh, work of the grace of God. Ephesians 2.8, Hebrews 12.2. And yet no one will be saved who does not repent and believe. And all who repent and believe will be saved. See, we have a choice in this. We do. And so today we've been fighting and maybe saying, okay, I don't, I don't know yet, but, but today would you consider that you need a savior? That you can't make it through this life by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps that Jesus is the answer that you need. And what you'll find is this, that your life and you being saved ultimately points to God as the hero for your salvation. All you can say is he did it. So let me ask you, do you believe that you are a sinner in desperate need of God's grace? And that the only solution to your and my personal sin problem is a savior? I wanna tell you today that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. No matter your past, whatever you've been through in life, that he is enough to cover you. And he's calling you to himself. The second point is this, that God secures, that God secures. So look at verse two, it says this, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Now, when we look at that, the, the word that probably sticks out to us is this word hope, like this hope of eternal life, this wishful thinking that maybe someday, When I get to those pearly gates that God would love me or accept me, I hope I get in. But that's not the type of hope that is biblical hope. Hope is an assured hope of eternal life. That that when we come to God, it's this, that it's not wishful thinking, but a present reality. That when God saves, he will secure. He's strong enough to hold you. See, as Christians, our security is based on God's strength, not our own. And so Paul tells us two things about God. Here's the first thing he tells us. He tells us that God never lies. This is a character thing about who God is as a father. But it also says that he promised. So you're gonna find throughout scripture that God, he never lies and he promises. Here's the thing. I've got three kids and all of them are uniquely different, yet all of them have this thing about promises. And so if there's something that I say that I'm like, well, maybe guys, they say, you promised. I'm gonna hold you to it, you promised, dad. And here's the thing about me as a father. I'm not a perfect father. And there'll be times where I didn't even realize that I promised something. And as good as an attempt as I, as I try to, to do as a dad, I like I forget, I drop the ball and I have to come to my kids, I say, oh, I'm so sorry. But here's the thing about God. God never does that. God is this perfect father who says, I'm not gonna drop the ball on you. I'm never gonna lie to you. And I'm always there. See, our security is sealed in that God sent his son at the perfect time to die for our sins, raised from the dead. And when you are a child of God, he doesn't say one day you're in, the next day you're out. I think that's on Project Runway. My wife's been watching that recently. One day you're in, next you're out. You know, is, is that, that's what it is. But yet we try to apply that to our spiritual lives as well. And here's the thing about God, he doesn't do that. Again, I've told you guys this before, but I remember the day my, my son he's he's uh, acting up and you know, having a really bad day. And he looks back at me and he says, Dad, are you gonna kick me out? You kick me out of the family? If we're based on your performance, no, I'm not gonna kick you out. I'm always your dad. And here's the thing, Jesus talks about this. He says that if if human fathers can be good fathers, just imagine the best father in the world and that God is so much better than him. You have a perfect father. And so in him, it was never about our behavior being good enough, because here's the thing, it would have never been good enough, but it is us putting our faith and our security in Jesus's behavior being good enough. That's the gospel, friends. That's where your security lies. And so if today I ask you, I say, okay, where do you place your trust? Where where do you place your ability? If you were to stand before God today, would you say, it wasn't based on my performance, but it's based on everything that Jesus has done for me. And that's it. See, that's true security. This is the radical nature of the gospel, that ultimately your security is not based on you, it is based on God. And that should put us in awe of who we have as a father, a loving, caring father. And so the last point is this, that that it shapes us. We're gonna find this in verses three through four. It says this, and at the proper time, manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. And then he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Now, if you look back at at verse one, here's what it says, that that Paul's mission, Paul's goal is that there is a knowledge that, that they would have of the truth, which accords with godliness, which leads to godliness, and so it's not just, well, God saved me, God covered me, and so I'm not a different person. But if it is true, if it is real, what happens is it says that we are transformed and we are changed and we are shaped by God. Sometimes the process is a little slower than others. But here's the thing. It's eventual. It happens. You become a person by the grace of God that you could have never been. Here's the thing. I look in the, in the back of uh, our yard We have this this tree that's back there. And here's the thing the tree has grown so big that it's like bursting out the cement wall, it's breaking through the the wall there. And at some point, you know, you have to ask the question which one is stronger, that cement wall or that little seed that was planted as that tree? When when you look back, back then, you're like, well, that wall's a lot stronger because there's no way that it could break through that. But now I see it. And the tree that was planted a long time ago that started to grow and sprout out, that broke through the barrier. That's breaking through the barrier, which isn't good, (laughs) but it's happening. And there are barriers and things that are in your life right now that only that seed of faith that God plants in your life can break through shape you and mold you. You say, well, I just keep struggling with the same sin again and again. Here's the thing. By the grace of God, you can be better today than you were yesterday. By the grace of God, you can be better today than you were a year ago. Because that little seed that was planted, God's powerful enough to grow it into a strong tree, just like it talks about in Psalm 1. God can do that. And so that is Paul's ambition, mission for life is that people under his teaching and guidance are growing more and more in the image of Jesus. See, God's goal for our faith in him is that we are shaped more and more to look like Christ. And so there are a couple ways he does that. And so he tells us here two ways. And so the first one is this. He says, at the proper time manifested his word. Now we can look at John uh, chapter one and look that Jesus came at the perfect time. But particularly in this verse, it's not talking about Jesus, even though he did manifest at the proper time and he is the word of God, but it's that God gave us his word at the proper time. Exactly what we needed. He says, through the preaching. He says, which I have been entrusted by the command of our God. And so here's the thing. Today, you and I, through the words of the prophets, the apostles, and ultimately through the life of Jesus and what he's taught us and what he said, we can know who God is. It's not a mystery of who God is. God has shown us who he is and he's shown us through his word. See, here's the thing. We have the living word of God in our hands and in our grasp on a daily basis. And that should be a miracle to us. That God has, and I would say, if you don't know much about the Bible and about the history of the Bible, I would say, look it up. read It, it is amazing that we have this book today and we're able to read it. Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's the thing, I've got this goal of reading more books this year, but there is no book that compares to this book. It all fails in comparison because this is the word of God. And as we grow in Christ, it is his word that shapes us. But secondly, it's this, it's his people. Look at verses three and four. We might miss this, but it says this, God, our Savior. A lot of the way we look at our Christian life is this, that we say, well, it's God, my Savior. He saved me. But when Paul is talking about God being a Savior, he says this God, our Savior. See, it wasn't in isolation that he found his faith in Christ, but it was with God's people. He says, my true child. Christianity is a community endeavor as we pursue Christ. Through the preaching of the gospel, God forms a family together. Here's the beautiful thing. I've been able to travel to different places all around the world, whether it be Ecuador, which we planted a church in in 2015, or whether it be Africa, Asia, I've been all over. And I've been able to see brothers and sisters all over the world. But I remember my first mission trip when I was in college was because of my wife. She said, Randall, you need to go on this mission trip with me and I'm like, well, I have my excuses. Here's my excuse, I don't have a passport. So you kinda need one of those to go and I don't have one. And uh, you uh, you need money. I'm a college student how am I gonna get money to go on this trip? And she said, uh, Randall, get over it. Get over these excuses and trust God. And so this trip was to the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, to Haiti. I remember preparing for the trip and just saying, making all these excuses again, like, "I I don't know if I should go or not. And got my passport the week before, all the money came in, all my excuses were washed away. And I remember going on that trip and seeing uh, brothers and sisters that were worshiping Jesus in a different language, I'd be moved deeply by the preaching of God's word and I'll never forget the little boy that I met at the school that we were helping at named Bickinson. And I remember the day, because he was holding my hand, that I had to let it go and saying, I'm going back home and knowing what his life was like there. You can't understand And I can't understand what being a human truly is until we start to see the global family of God. And it will change you, just like it changed me in that moment. Here's the thing, Pew Research says this. It says Christians are geographically widespread, so far flung in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably claim to be the center of global Christianity. Isn't that crazy? That, that no country, no continent could say, we're the hub of Christianity because we might say, well, America's the hub of Christianity and it needs to come through America. No, it doesn't. God is doing global movements all over the world. There's an underground church in China that meets. We say, we've got it tough. No, we don't. See, we are shaped by our family and our family is a global family that God brings together. And so just some quick takeaways as we wrap up here. The first one is this. Do you have assurance that God has saved you? Do you have an assurance that God has saved you? I would say don't walk through life wondering if you're in Christ or not. There are brothers and sisters who love Christ that are here. And so talk with somebody today, pray with somebody today, receive the good news that Jesus came for you and he died for your sins and he's covered you. And that when you stand before a holy God someday, you stand there not based on your own personal righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He covers us. The second one is this, are you allowing God's word to shape you? You know, for us right now, I've been going through uh, some different study plans. And I, and I don't know if you're on that version Bible app, you can get it on your phone but there are Bible plans that you can do and you can invite friends and they keep you accountable. I'm in two right now and I get updates because there's a section at the end where it says, talk it over. And so when you click that and you put talk it over, it sends it to all the people in the group. So it keeps you accountable to reading the word of God. See, we have no excuse. We say, well, we're too busy. No, we're not. No, we're not what I found is that I busy myself with things that don't matter as much as the word of God. I'm the king at busying myself with things that don't matter. And so I've been waking up first thing, I've got it right by my bed. I just go straight to my phone and I just read and listen to the word of God. And what will happen is it shapes you because here's the thing, there are moments where I read it and I'm like, I didn't get that fuzzy feeling. Like, oh, this is what God spoke to me today. But here's the thing in my faith, he's shaping me to be consistent. He's shaping me to know that I need his word. And sometimes maybe that thing that you read that day isn't for you, but it's for somebody else. Because you read it and you were like, oh man, I don't know what that means. I, And then you go and talk with one of your friends and they say, man, I'm really struggling with this. And you're like, oh, I read this thing earlier and I wanna tell you about it. The last one is this. Are you currently living life with other believers that will help you to become more like Christ, more like Jesus? And I use the word currently because here's the cycle that happens. I remember when me and my wife started this small group and we got to the place where it was awesome. We had all of our friends in there and it was just great and new people were coming in. And then what happened is our friends started to move away. It was just the life stage we were in. And we looked around and we were like, where did everybody go? They all moved. They're not here anymore. And what can happen is that some of us can start to live off of past church and small group experiences and not engaging today in God's people, right? We're living off of past things instead of present things. And here's the thing, gospel faith is always in the context of community with others. And so my challenge to you is this, are you currently living life with believers that will help you to become more like Christ? That will push you to become more like Jesus? Because as I'm in that little group with people and we're reading together, it is. It is. Here's the thing. This is the gospel. This is the beauty of it all. Because of our common faith in Jesus and what he has done, Martin Luther King's dream is a reality. It is a reality. See, the apostle John said this, In Revelation 7, 9, he he says, this is what I see. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. You wanna know the picture of heaven? You wanna know the the beauty of what, what... what that dream really was about. People of all nations, tribes, languages coming together in a common faith. And their focus is on the sacrificial lamb, Jesus, the only one who can take away the sins of the world. So let's look to him today. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that your vision is a reality. God, that as we come together in a common faith around Jesus Christ and what he has done, you build a family of people from all nations coming together as one. And we become your church. So thank you, God, as as Grace City, You're doing that in our midst. You're bringing people together from all different walks of life and making a family because of Jesus. And so we thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Gray City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.